Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Think about the best feeling you've ever had. Like a time when you'd say you actually experienced euphoria. What did that feeling feel like? It's just like a feeling in your chest, sort of where your heart is, of pure, absolute, complete bliss. Like bliss so strong, you just have to like close your eyes and stop what you're doing and just feel this like pure, complete happiness. This is Peter Grinspoon's answer to that question. Like imagine like you're starving and then you have a bite of your favorite food, but then multiply that times a thousand. For him, the feeling came from taking Vicodin. Grinspoon's a doctor, but the first time he tried Vicodin, he was still in medical school. His girlfriend, another medical student, had gotten a bunch of pills. He remembers looking up the ones they hadn't tried before in a pharmacology textbook. And it said, you know, beware, causes euphoria and a false sense of well-being. And once we read that, we were sort of destined to try it. There is a reason why people take drugs. You know, they drugs can be fun and they can make you feel really good. You know, I could say firsthand that they also can incinerate the rest of your life. I'm Mary Harris, this time on Only Human, a physician with a charmed life crashes and burns. It's a story of one person with a drug problem, but it's also the story of an epidemic taking hold. Peter Grinspoon tells it in his new book, Free Refills. Grinspoon had experimented with a lot of drugs before Vicodin, but he says the first time he tried it, it was like he split in two. On the outside, he was finishing medical school and moving on to residency at Harvard. But on the inside, he couldn't stop chasing that euphoric feeling. You know, I still was me going, you know, studying, going along my daily life. But a part of me had this, like, radar on looking for more Vicodin. Did you understand at the time that you were becoming an addict? Um, I was so deeply in denial about this. I was very good and very successful at stuffing that thought way to the bottom of my consciousness. So I would say on some very deep level, I knew it. But on most conscious levels, I was blithely unaware of the fact that I was sinking deeper and deeper into addiction. How were you getting the drugs? Well, medicine is a land of opportunity for a drug addict. So there's sort of an infinite way of procuring medications. People would prescribe it for me. You know, I'd honestly, I'd steal it from friends and family members. Um, you could be in your clinic and, you know, an elderly patient could say, oh, they gave me 60 of these pills in the ER and they hurt my stomach, so I'm giving them back to you. And then you'd have 59 Percocet sitting right there in your desk that nobody would be supervising. I mean, it's almost infinite the access we have to medications. Well, you're describing this kind of double life because at the same time that you're stealing pills from patients and friends, you're a pretty successful student. How'd you manage it? I was a super motivated student, and I don't quite know how I managed it. I just think that the one thing that had been always, like, ingrained in me is kind of scholarship and love of learning and reading and writing and doing well in school. So really, that was the last thing to go. Um, during the day, I would work really hard in medical school, and at night, to relax, I'd just take as many pills as I had. Yeah, so how many are we talking here? Um, I would probably take up to 10 Vicodin. I never, ever injected it, and I never 
took dozens upon dozens, but it was creeping up. I mean, it started at two, and then it was four, and then it was six. And I would say it was 10 to 12 to 15 by the end. Do you think it ever impaired your performance as a physician? Well, I never took it before work. And I was never, quote-unquote, impaired at work. So that enabled me to sort of rationalize and justify that the answer to that question is no. But in reality, during the day, I was withdrawing. I was grouchy because I was withdrawing. I was restless and sweaty. I was in a bad mood. I was a little bit foggy from the night before. So I would say that, no, I was not directly impaired when I was taking care of patients. But yes, I was by no means at my best when I was caring for patients. And you said you would take 10. What's a normal dose? Uh, One or two. But if you take one or two, you don't get much euphoria. If you take 10, it really is euphorogenic, um, which is why these pills are so dangerous. After a while, it wasn't just Vicodin. Any opiate would do. He took fentanyl, oxycodone, Percocet, codeine. At the same time, he met someone and got married. And then came his honeymoon. My honeymoon was, um, was during residency. And I went from, you know, this really intensive training to, like, honeymooning in Maine um, and just relaxing on the beach. And it was just a very kind of surreal transition. And I was withdrawing pretty bad. At first, I didn't realize that I was withdrawing. But then it occurred to me that I hadn't ever been sort of away from the hospital for a couple weeks in a long time. You know, you just do the most desperate things when you're addicted to drugs. Things that you'd never think of doing in a million years. Things that you abhor. So what I did is I called in a medication for Peter Grinspoon under the name of someone else. Um, And then I went in and picked it up as Peter Grinspoon and kind of chilled out the rest of my honeymoon. It's only in retrospect that I realized how crazy this was. Crazy on so many levels. It's illegal. It's just the wrong thing to do. And it also wasn't fair to my new wife, who deserved not to have someone who was completely drugged out on her honeymoon. But at the time, it must have seemed kind of magical, like, oh, I can solve this problem. To the crazy, addicted part of my brain, it was like, I thought I was Albert Einstein. I mean, this seemed like a genius solution. At at the time, I thought I was brilliant and like, ha, no one could keep up with me. And I really got this under control. Yeah, at the time, I felt great about it. So eventually, to keep getting pills, you started sharing prescriptions with your patients. Yeah, this is the part that I'm not that comfortable uh, talking about. But again... In my crazy, addicted thinking, and in my desperation to to procure medications, because the thing about addiction is you sort of need to procure more and more and more because you develop tolerance. So I was so desperate, and in my crazy, addicted thinking, it just seemed like a good idea. I, I certainly had some patients that were taking too many opiates who, in retrospect, I think were probably either selling them or abusing them. And I can't even describe how it came about, but we sort of like joined forces And I would write them for a little bit of extra, and they'd give some back to me. I was basically, you know, taking advantage of these patients. I was doing the one thing that you're not supposed to do as a doctor. So it's just very upsetting for me to think about. 
you described this relationship you had with a patient that was like a parasite host kind of thing where she would ask for meds and you would give them and then talk about your migraines. And it sounds like a complicated dance. Yeah, it was a complicated dance, but on another level, it was very simple. You know, I was on drugs and she was on drugs and we were both procuring drugs. The only problem was I was a physician and I was supposed to be the responsible adult in the room and I wasn't. Yeah. When I read scenes like this in his book and think about the patients he took advantage of, I find it really, really hard not to dislike him. And looking back on it, Peter Grinspoon can see exactly how bad this was. But he says that at the time, it all felt okay until the cops showed up. So after you've been addicted for almost 10 years, you got caught. Tell the story of how that happened. Well, I was coming back from lunch. Some drug rep was feeding us pizza, probably. And I came back to my office expecting to see patients, to have a busy but hectic afternoon. And instead, when I got back to my office, the state police and the DEA were sitting in my office. And this really surprised me. Um, I didn't quite immediately connect the fact that they were in my office with the fact that I've been basically committing criminal acts for the last 10 years. So I hedged a little bit, and the DEA agent said, Doc, cut the crap. We know you've been writing bad prescriptions. Another way he used to get pills was by calling in a prescription for someone else and then picking it up himself. After a while, a pharmacist got suspicious. You know, at the time when the pharmacist figured out that I was writing bogus prescriptions, I was so angry and resentful at her. And now, you know, as the years have gone by, I'm very grateful to her because who knows what would have happened if she didn't stop my descent into, like, ever-worsening addiction. I mean, I could have easily overdosed or, or, or hurt someone. So the way you ultimately got caught was a pharmacist turned you in. Exactly. Do you know her? It sounds like you do. Well, I know who she is. She was like the friendly pharmacist at the local CVS that I used to go to. I would love to see her now and just say thank you. But, you know, this was... um. 11 years ago, actually 12 years ago, so I don't know, don't know how I'd find her. Peter Grinspoon was charged with fraudulently prescribing controlled substances. He was suspended from practicing medicine and sent to rehab, and his wife kicked him out of the house they shared with their young kids. After the break, the long climb back. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. Two weeks ago on the show, I talked to Dr. Willie Parker, who provides abortions at clinics in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. Many of you got in touch after hearing that episode to share your appreciation for Dr. Parker. You also told us about your own experiences. A listener named Hillary told us that when she decided to have an abortion a year ago, she worried about how it would affect her. I thought that this experience was going to be so traumatizing and so emotionally just overwhelming that I was going to walk away feeling like my life had changed for the worse. But I think this experience of having an abortion was one of the most positively life-changing experiences I've ever had. 
Hillary says she feels in charge of her life and her decisions, and she looks forward to having a family when she's ready for that to happen. Another listener named Sarah wrote to tell us about having a late-term abortion after finding out that her fetus had genetic anomalies that would be fatal in utero or just after birth. She writes, I was handed a piece of paper which listed the only abortion clinic in my city, which is in the heart of the South, that would perform a late-term abortion. My abortion changed my life, and I'll never forget every single moment of it. From the first moments driving up with protesters yelling at me, to waiting in the clinic for my turn, hearing other women crying in pain, to the last minute before I was put under. I did not want an abortion, but it was necessary. It was my right as a woman to make my decision, to decide for myself and my body. If we lose these clinics, if we lose men like Dr. Willie Parker, what happens to a woman's rights? Thank you so much for all of your calls and emails. We've read and listened to every one of them. You can always reach us at onlyhuman at wnyc.org. I'm Mary Harris, and this is Only Human. And I'm talking to Dr. Peter Grinspoon, who tells the story of his addiction to painkillers in his new book, Free Refills. He was 39 when the DEA showed up at his office a decade ago. He'd been an addict for years by that point, but his fascination with drugs started much earlier. Did drugs feel glamorous to you when you were a kid? Drugs felt glamorous to me as a kid. Drugs felt glamorous to me in high school. Drugs felt glamorous to me in college, and then drugs felt glamorous to me when I was in medical school. So, so pretty I think much that always. Is one problem. Yeah, they've always, I've just been obsessed with them. I mean, not anymore, but I was. And, you know, pharmacology was always my favorite subject in medical school. I just thought they were so interesting. I mean, they are so interesting, but that doesn't mean you have to take all of them. <laughs> the fascination was at least a little bit inherited. Peter Grinspoon's dad is a well known psychiatrist named Lester Grinspoon who researched marijuana in the 60s and concluded it wasn't as harmful as people believed. He also advocated for medical marijuana. Peter says growing up, his family wasn't like others he knew. The other houses were just, you know, conservative, affluent suburbs, sort of nondescript. And our house, like the 60s, were still going strong with the drugs. And at, over dinner, we'd have really interesting visitors and the peace pipe would be going around and people would be having these like incredibly deep and intense discussions about, you know, why do people still believe in religion when science explains the world? Or, you know, how can we solve hunger now that we have the technology to produce so much food? They'd be having these really deep conversations. Carl Sagan was a family friend and a regular at those dinners. It sounds exciting. Yeah, no, it was really, really fun and interesting. But it was not a great childhood for, like, fitting into conservative uh, high school. We were always, like, the kids that stuck out. Grinspoon would never say that his freewheeling childhood led to his drug problem. Instead, he says he has a seeker's personality and a biological weakness for opiates. And that's what set him up to tear his own life apart. After your arrest for overprescribing pain medication and writing fraudulent prescriptions, you moved out of the house you shared with your wife and kids and you moved back in with your parents. Mm -hmm. How much did you talk with them about your drug use? Well... It was sort of a painful topic, and I was pretty embarrassed about the mess I'd made in my life. So I didn't really talk about it that much. 
But they knew that I was getting drug testing. They knew I was in trouble with the board. They knew that I had criminal charges. They knew that I was meeting every month with my probation officer. Uh, so they, they, I was very honest and open with them about like the objective circumstances that I was undergoing, bleak as they may have been. But I didn't really feel that comfortable talking to them. The only person I felt comfortable talking to were my brothers, actually, my older brother and my twin brother. Why didn't you feel comfortable talking to your parents? I don't know. It's, it's a different dynamic with your parents. You feel like you let them down. You feel like, you know, they invest so much in you, and then here you are not practicing medicine and with criminal charges hanging over your head. I don't know. I just felt really bad about myself. I mean, I think addicts in general suffer from, like, just overwhelming guilt and shame. And I think physician addicts who have been booted from their job feel like profound guilt and shame. And I just felt so bad about myself. I just didn't feel comfortable talking about it. But your dad made a career out of researching drug use. So I'm kind of wondering how they handled your addiction. Well, you know, I was thinking about that. It's a very different skill set, like being an expert on drug use. Like he wrote a book on marijuana, several books on marijuana, several books on psychedelic drugs, a book on speed, a book on cocaine, a book on drug policy. He is definitely an expert in drugs of abuse. But I think it's a very different skill set and a very different part of your personality and your brain when a loved one gets addicted. So I'm not sure that one really prepares you for the other. So I think he was just sort of in the category of a bewildered, concerned parent like anybody else. And I don't think all this knowledge about about illicit drugs really helped him that much. It wasn't easy for Peter Grinspoon to get sober. He did a three-month stint in rehab, and after that, the medical board monitored him with random drug tests. He failed some of them because he kept relapsing. He and his wife went through a messy divorce. Grinspoon knew his addiction could separate him, not only from his career, but from his kids. So he kept trying to get better, and eventually he did. That he managed to recover is significant. In the past 15 years, overdose deaths from painkillers and heroin have gone up by 200% as pill addiction has spread. Prescription pill addicts have turned to heroin because it's a cheaper way to get high. You know, the country's in the middle of this opiate epidemic. And 10 years ago, you were overprescribing pills to your patients. Correct. How complicit do you think doctors are in what's happening now? Well, like, there are a very small subset of doctors that are just, like, bad actors. They're the ones you read about in the pill mills that are just prescribing tons of opiates to make quick cash. Everybody agrees that they're awful and they're very complicit. But, like, your average pain specialist or your average primary care doctor sees a patient that's suffering. And I think that they mean to do well, but they're just prescribing too many opiates. But then, you know, it's a little bit complicated by the fact that the pharmaceutical companies have manipulated the whole debate. They contributed in a myriad of ways to the overprescribing by advertising, by providing samples, by providing educational materials, by lobbying the government to make pain the quote-unquote fifth vital sign to raise the prominence of pain. So it's fine for someone to want to treat someone else's pain, but if uh, industry has such a such a direct interest in selling pills, they're sort of like the wolf in the hen house. So you're working again. You're a primary care physician at a clinic in Boston. Yeah, I've been back um, at work for eight years. How hard was it for you to trust yourself going back into the medical setting where you knew you'd have access to drugs again? Well, I had changed so much in that three and a half years that I was out. I mean, I had changed. I more mature, more aware of my addiction. I was a lot happier. There were so many changes for the better 
that I think I was much less of a setup for addiction. I have no desire or craving or anything to take opiates. But if there are 10 bottles of pills on a table and one of them happens to be Vicodin, I'll notice the difference. It's all bottles are not equal. I will notice that there's nine bottles and there's a bottle of Vicodin. I won't want to take the Vicodin, but my brain will always be sensitized to the opiates. But you said you've had this lifelong fascination with drugs. Did that fascination go away? Yeah, I think it's like someone who has a lifelong fascination with like lighting fires, like a young pyromaniac who then burns his hand off. I think they become less infatuated with fire once they've burnt themselves to shreds. Yeah. So I think I sort of burnt out my fascination by, you know, kind of uh, engulfing my life in flames. Are you allowed to write prescriptions now? Oh, absolutely. I wasn't allowed to for like the first year that I got back. But for the last seven years, I've been allowed to write prescriptions. I'm much more thoughtful about how I write them, though. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Do you prescribe differently now? Well, my office mate jokes that I don't prescribe anything stronger than Tylenol. But that's absolutely not true. If someone has shingles, a broken leg, you know, really bad sciatica, I'll definitely give them opiates. I just try not to get too many people on chronic opiates. I think that's where people get in trouble. The other thing I would say, there's an age-old adage for addicts, which is you can't bullshit a bullshitter. So I think I'm an awful person to uh, try to scam narcotics from because I've heard all the stories. Either I've tried to do all the scams myself to get opiates or in all the support group meetings and the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and the Narcotics Anonymous meetings that I've been to, I've heard the different scams. So I'm just an awful person for someone to come in and try to scam drugs from. Grinspoon describes the place where he works now as an inner-city clinic. He sees patients fighting and feeding addiction all the time. And he says doctors just don't have enough options for helping patients who they know are in trouble. Do you deal with addicted patients now and you just don't feel like you have things to offer them? Well, it's really amazing how hard it is to get someone into treatment. A lot of times all I have to offer people is like a four-day detox program where they get off the drugs, but then they're not in recovery. They're just detoxed. And then they get kicked back out to the street. And it can be feel like banging your head against the wall because you keep trying to help and trying to help and they keep relapsing and relapsing. I mean, I find treating addicts to be really challenging and frustrating. And I'm the person who should be the most sympathetic because I've been through it. I mean, I can't, you know, other doctors must have a really hard time with this. So I have to say, in this interview, you're really likable. But in this book, you have some really bad moments. That's what addiction does. It's awful. Can you imagine having to live with this? It's just, I feel so guilty about it. Do you worry about, say, your kids reading this book? Well, my kids are teenagers, and they're going to read it. I spoke with my 14-year-old son, and I said, you know, look, um, I'm not so sure that this is something you should read. It says some pretty tough things about your mom and about me, and I made a lot of mistakes. And he just said, well, screw you. I'm going to read it. I'm really curious. I'll buy it in a bookstore or with my own money, or I'll get it in the library. So I'm going to read it no matter what. So, you know, I just don't think you have that much control when your kids are teenagers. But Grinspoon is really aware that because he's an addict— his kids have a higher risk of becoming addicted. So I wanted to know, what does he tell them? The advice I give them basically is don't try pot until you're in college and alcohol can wreck your life and all other drugs are evil. All other drugs are evil. <laughs> yes, it's pretty true. I mean, cocaine, meth, all the other drugs that people do in college, it's, they're crazy. 
I mean, it's this stuff is so dangerous. Do you worry about it? Well, yeah, I worry about it like all parents worry about it. But I also hope that my situation and the fact that they know so much about it and I've been so open, that will have a protective effect. So I think they're going to be okay. I mean, I think you can't really predict who's going to get in trouble. But, you know, my daughter is just an extremely serious student. She's 15. And, you know, my son is a good student too. And they're just, you know, again, you never know who's going to end up getting in trouble with drugs. But you were a really good student too. But you still ended up in this situation. Well, anybody can. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing. There's no stereotype that actually fits. I mean, I have a patient that's like a 78-year-old grandmother who's a heroin addict. Really? Um, yeah, she's like a white 78-year-old grandmother who's a heroin addict. And I guess it could be anybody. Peter Grinspoon, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Peter Grinspoon's book, Free Refills, is out this week. If you're a nurse or a doctor, we'd like to hear from you. Is it as easy to get pills as Peter Grinspoon says it was for him at the start of his career? And have you ever wrestled with addiction yourself? Leave us a comment at onlyhuman.org or contact us on Facebook. We're at Only Human Podcast. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Paige Cowett and edited by Molly Messick. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Fred Mogul, and Ankita Rao. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Special thanks to Eleni Murphy and Megan Cunane. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.